This is TV Take, Variety's television podcast. I'm Daniel Holloway. Today, Senior Features Editor Danielle Terciano talks with Aline Brosh McKenna, executive producer of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, which ends its four-season run the evening of April 5th. Later, critics Daniel D'Addario and Caroline Framke will talk about BBC America's Killing Eve and FX's Fosse Burden. Stay tuned. Hi, this is Danielle Terciano, Senior Features Editor of Television at Variety, and today I want to welcome back to the podcast, well, the newly revamped podcast, Aline Brash McKenna from Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. Welcome back. Thanks Thank for you. joining us. Thank you for having me. So the last time you were on was ahead of the final season premiere, so we were just talking very broad strokes, but now, I mean, it's imminent. You know, it's uh, we've just got a chance to see the, the second-to-last episode. And, in I mean, in that episode... So heavily involved on the three dates, obviously, yeah. and, and Rebecca choosing her guy. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about how that came together, why you wanted to kind of end on the decision, because it feels like you're very much setting up the finale to definitively say who she's going to pick. Yeah. The real fun, one of the real fun um, elements of writing this season was getting all the guys to a place where they truly all seem like viable options. Uh, you know, I think we really have immersed in Rebecca Bunch's journey and what's happened with her and how she's gotten better. But, you know, all of the guys also have been on their own journeys towards happiness and self-fulfillment and um, self-realization. And with with varying degrees of sort of comedic quotes around those things. And so getting Josh, Nathaniel, and Greg all to the point where she could choose all of them uh, was a lot of fun. And then a a thing that happened in conjunction with that is that we did a lot of storylines where those guys paired up and became friends with each other. And so we did... um, Nathaniel and Josh becoming friends and singing sports analogies and uh, Greg and Nathaniel accidentally becoming friends at the gym. And so tracking their journeys alongside her journeys was very important to us. And uh, in episode 15, she really ends realizing that she needs to spend more time with these men and figuring out what they've meant to her and what she's meant to them. And so those those two episodes were really fun to write. Mm-hmm. How important was it to um, kind of get some of the other characters' journeys to a resolution earlier so that we could focus more on Rebecca at the end? That's a very smart question. That is actually something we consciously did, particularly with the women. Mm-hmm. That's why the women, um, Valencia moves early on in the season and Heather gets married early on in the season because we didn't want a bottleneck of everybody having giant epiphanies at the same (laughs) time. It felt like it would be too kind of tight and convenient. So we tried to parcel out everybody's journey of discovery. I mean, Josh had the furthest to go, and that's why Josh in the first episode discovers therapy and sort of starts to realize, well, maybe I need to examine my own behavior, which is something that had never occurred to him and would never have occurred to him without Rebecca Bunch in his life. So we we consciously started everybody's journeys and landed everybody's journeys in slightly different places so that it wouldn't feel, um, you know, overly convenient that everybody's sort of landing their round-off back handsprings on the same day. (laughs) Right. And I mean, you mentioned the last time you were here, too, that originally you guys were going to have 13 episodes for the season and then you were given 18. Yes. So when you had that structure to play with, did that also affect who you 
resolved where? And, and how does that also get affected by the fact that, hey, there's an hour that we're dedicating to a live concert special? So the, the first um, thing we did was ask if we could make the last episode a concert special because it was something that we had talked about frequently. And so we asked CBS if they would be interested in and CW be interested in having the last episode be a concert special. So that that left us with mm-hmm. 17, which is four more than we had planned on doing. Uh, it gave us space to do episodes that were a little bit more ruminative or mm-hmm. um, like we did the, the episode episode six where everybody goes on a car trip together Mm -hmm. and sings a beach boy song but everybody pairs up in different configurations we did episode 11 which is uh a spoof of some of the tropes of romantic comedies including some of the ones i've written um (laughs) which was funny and odd um and then you know so and then we did a the episode where her this is going to sound really strange for someone who's never seen the show we did an episode where her vaginal um, infections mm-hmm. came to life as singing mm-hmm. cats, and that perhaps is something we would not have done. So I, we, you know, ultimately the expansion allowed us to do some episodes that um, were fun and a little bit off the beaten path, but allowed us to continue to explore these relationships. And that's where these kind of tertiary friendships mm-hmm. really blossomed, and that was fun. Do you feel like um, having the extra real estate also gave you more time? for Rebecca to make her decision. Like how the fact, because so much of, of the show is centered on she moved to West Covina for this guy. She's tried to find happiness through these men. She's coming to realize throughout the years that that's not necessarily the healthiest thing. And yet. Right. Well, since it's an examination of tropes, um, having to choose among different romantic suitors, you know, is, is another trope. Uh, and so it nicely built towards the idea that she has to choose among these guys. The trope that we were also sort of looking to examine, often in these movies when a woman is choosing between two men, it's usually two, it's generally not three, <laughs> um, they are, one's clearly a jerk, mm-hmm. like a cartoon jerk. So you're, there really isn't a lot of suspense. And so you know we have our cartoon jerk and we humanized him and we have our you know um friend zone guy which is greg and then we have our you know dreamy high school quarterback which is josh and it gave us sort of a chance to get inside all of those Mm -hmm. tropes and as we were engaging with this idea of Mm -hmm. a romantic choice being a culminative event in a woman's life and what does that actually mean and what do they represent for her uh and what choice is actually in front of her Mm -hmm. Um, One of the things that you've talked about in the past has been your connection to Paula. Yeah. So did you feel any, like, added pressure in how you wanted to say goodbye to Paula as opposed to Rebecca? Uh, Well, yeah. I mean, Paula is, you know, when we were writing the episodes in the writer's room, if we got stuck, we would always think uh, what's happening between Rebecca and Paula because – that is the central, I hesitate to say central love story. It's the central relationship mm-hmm. of the show. And it's not an accident that you have a you know middle-aged lady and a young lady writing a show where that's the central relationship. And so uh, we continue to focus on Paula through the very end. Paula has achieved her dream, but is sort of fine-tuning her dream through the very end of the series. And so she was often the little secret key mm-hmm. to episodes um, but, you know, we also got to do a lot of solo storylines with, with Donna Lynn, and mm-hmm. that's been a joy. Um, 
But yeah, I feel very connected to her uh, for obvious reasons. And then, you know, there's there's certain characters that Rachel or I or certain members of the writer's room gravitate more mm-hmm. towards their voice, and that's always fun. Um, and I would say um, Paula and Nathaniel, and to a certain extent, um, Valencia, are the ones who are maybe the most blunt. Mm-hmm. And um, so I gravitated towards them, and Rachel has a real feel for Greg stuff and uh, and the sort of uh, the dryness of Heather. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the writer's room also has gotten a debt after four years of a very stable writer's room of, of writing for all the characters. Is there, um, from the writing standpoint, yeah. is there, are, were there a lot of things that you felt like, I want to say before the end of the show, either through a character or through a song or through a trope? How did you kind of work out maybe a personal message yeah, I mean, ended. we, you know, we had a lot of like long discussions this year in the room between me and Rachel with the actors about where we were headed and, you know, what our sort of summarizing feeling would, would be. And, you know, we often talk about what the characters think and then what the show thinks mm-hmm. because a lot of what a show is doing by virtue of its type of storytelling is that you're framing these discussions for people. So, particularly in the first season when Rebecca was framing, was behaving really badly, you know, when she's saying to a homeless person, um, uh, I'm sorry, I only have twenties. I got them from working. It's clear that the show is not endorsing that. And so framing the, what the show thinks versus what the characters think, uh, is something that we talk a lot about in the writer's room and, and with Rachel. And so, yeah, there were things that we, I wouldn't say wanted to say because it's it makes it sound like it's a polemic, but that we wanted the characters to work through mm-hmm. and sort of show how people work through these various challenges. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously, you direct or not obviously, but I'm telling people yeah. you directed the finale, and yeah. so I want to do I do want to turn to the production of yeah. the final episode. I mean, first of all, it's not your first time directing, but does it did it have extra weight? Was there were there also things that you said before? we close, uh-huh. we need to do X, Y, and Z on the set as a family, but also in the production, in the shots, in the yeah. homages to earlier seasons, all of that good stuff. Well, I'll tell you that, you know, we I've directed all the finales, and generally what happens is Sarah Kaplan, our line producer, executive producer, who's really brilliant, squirrels away extra money for me so that I have a little bit more time to make those finales a little bit more expansive. And if you're if you've watched the show, you'll know season one had a big wedding. Season mm-hmm. two also had a big wedding on the cliffside in Malibu. Um, and last year we had a, a big uh, fight stunt on a roof. So we've needed more mm-hmm. time. Um, so for this finale, so I've had eight, nine, I think I even had ten days once, mm. um, and and a bigger budget. So what happened this year is we had so many episodes, and the last few episodes were quite ambitious. The scale of them. So early on, Sarah came to me and said, if you continue spending like this, you're only going to have seven days for the finale. And I knew that the finale was going to be a more internal, first-person, intimate Mm. event. So I said, that's fine. Uh, And it doesn't have... uh, It didn't have the same production exigencies as some of the episodes we've done before. So that being said, I kind of screwed myself a little bit, and I did not have that big cushion for the finale mm-hmm. of the extra day or two. Um, 
So we were cranking, you know, we were cranking <laughs> through that finale to get everything we needed. And, um, you know, especially in, there are big group scenes in the finale mm-hmm. and, you know, that's winging a prayer, man. You, at that point you are really dependent on the fact that these actors and these crew members have all been working together for so long that you can, you can speed through things. Cause we really had to book through some technically very challenging things in the finale. You mentioned, obviously, that there was a bigger scope to some of the sh- episodes that came before. And yes. I feel like maybe what you're speaking about is that you've gone off soundstage a little bit more. Can you tell me a little bit about like why you chose to do that, where you chose to do it? Right. And also, um, when you do look at the finale, are we? you said it was more internal. So is it more of a saying goodbye to Rebecca's space, or are you also able to see Los Angeles or West, quote-unquote West Well, you know, the, the, any, as anyone, any of your listeners who work in production know, it's the, <laughs> the location stuff is very expensive yes. for us. <laughs> and so we, um, you know, we have episodes where we're, that we've done completely on our stages that are not tech, they're not technically bottles in that they don't take place in one room, but an episode like episode 10 where we had the game night and then we have Rebecca and Greg in Daryl's mm-hmm. house. Those are the main sets. Um, you know, that those are all on our stages. Mm-hmm. So we vary. It's just towards the end. We had 14 was a community theater. Mm-hmm. Um, episode 15 takes place in Vegas. And by Vegas, mm-hmm. I mean, quote, unquote, Vegas. Um, <laughs> and then 16 has um, our last huge uh, group number. And those are, you know, they're just, they're more expensive. The more people you have, the more offset you go. Uh, but we we're confident in that because it's, you know, it's Rebecca's personal journey. It's a first-person show. And so it really is an internal... There's a lot of internal exploration in 17 as she's making her decision. Mm-hmm. We really go inside Rebecca's brain. Mm-hmm. What, what did it feel like on set when you were filming the final... Not necessarily the final scene, but those final Moments. Days. Those final days. days. Uh, yeah. You know... Um, it, it, it TV show is so much work that you are waking up in the morning just thinking about literally what you have to do that day, what you have to capture on screen, and all the the little details that go into it, and waking up early, and you know making sure that you're checking off all the mm. the list of things that you need to do. So it's easy to really focus on those things mostly, and that's really what we did. Um, we made a documentary about the making of the finale, and it's going to be airing on CW Seed, and it's a very, very detailed look at mm-hmm. those last 14 days, um, and it shows you the process, and that was something Rachel and I really wanted to do. Um, we actually wanted, we tried to get them to let us do that as one of our final episodes as well, but we ended up doing it on the CW Seed, mm-hmm. um, and we wanted to really show the day-to-day that goes into making something like that and the hundreds of people whose hard work and love and attention comes together to make something and how Rachel and I collaborate and what a female-led environment looks like um, and all the sort of elements that all the elements that go into making an episode. So you, you actually will be able to see those final moments. Okay. What do you feel like you're going to miss the most? It's definitely the people. Uh, it's definitely the people. I mean, I am really lucky as a showrunner. You're in every department, really, because, you know, I'm part of the writer's room. I spend time on set, especially when I'm directing, and I spend time in post. Um, 
I, I spend time with every team. And so, you know, you really get to know these folks really well. And um, we've had an extremely stable crew and extremely stable writer's room. So most of the people on the show, most of the department heads have made, have been the same since day one. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's like you've gone to college together. And last night when we were doing the Paley Fest, um, I... You know, we started to talk about the show in the past tense. Mm -hmm. And for me, it's really all about the people because I was a screenwriter for many years and worked alone a lot of the time. And then the shoot for a movie is, you know, especially on the the size of a movie that I write is between, you know, 30 and 45 days. Mm -hmm. So those are intense days. Mm -hmm. But, you know, four and a half, five years means there has been births and deaths and Mm -hmm. babies born and, you know, miscarriages and divorces and people falling in love. And, you know, everybody's been through so much together. Um, And then just the the work of shoulder to shoulder, being shoulder to shoulder with these folks, you learn so much about yourself and about other people when you're trying to get things done. And, you know, we've been surrounded by extremely hardworking, kind, helpful people. And I have to ask, the last time you were on the podcast with Rachel, I had asked if you knew what the final words would be, yeah. and Rachel had said, yeah, and yes. there's six of them. Yes. I'm not going to ask you what they are. Yeah. Everyone can tune in yes. April 5th uh, to, to find out. But um, were they, are they the same? Yeah. That had- scene that scene has been intact since the day Rachel and I started pitching the show. Uh, and so... I don't want to oversell like we knew every second of every minute. You know, we wrote the finale yeah. the day we pitched it, but we did know the the last scenes or what her destination would be for us. And so it was very emotional to hear Rachel say them. Mm-hmm. Um, she wept at the table read. And then uh, somehow when we, it was funny because it was, it was a very moving moment at the table read, a little sad. And then when we did them on stage, it felt triumphant. Mm. Is that the final scene that you guys actually shot? Were you in any uh, sort yeah, of linear Not order? in exact order, but it was shot on the last day, yes. Okay, okay. Because I would imagine that whatever the final scene that you shoot is kind of sets the tone for the, the final sadness. <laughs> no, the final, it's funny you should say that, because the final scene is um, Skylar and David Hall, Skylar Aston and David Hall, having a little conversation in the corner of this room. Oh. And it's a joke. Yeah, no, we didn't time it so that it would culminate. You just, the exigencies of production being right. what they are, we didn't. But she did do it on that day. Um, and she's brilliant. And so it was shot that last day. The last day of shooting, we wrapped 19 people on the same day. And so it was chaos. Yeah. It was chaos. Yeah, wow. and fun. And in, the, in a great just... way. And then a lot of, you know, the writers showed up and um, a lot of people showed up on that day. And so... Um, that's also something you can see in the in the finale doc is everybody clustered around the video village and then how ma- just how many people were on set. Mm-hmm. Did, was it a, like a celebratory feeling or was there Definitely. also just a feeling of just like... I think everybody toggled mm-hmm. between those two emotions, you know, for the last week, really. Mm-hmm. And on that day, though, I think because there were so many people there, it, it really felt like a party. Yeah. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for being here. Sure. Season 2 of acclaimed spy drama Killing Eve will debut April 7th on BBC America and AMC. FX's Fosse Verdon, about the legendary choreographer Bob Fosse and dancer Gwyn Verdon, will premiere April 9th. Caroline Framke and Daniel D'Addario discuss the two shows. The first season of Killing Eve on BBC America 
was an out-of-the-box critical sensation, and it grew week after week to become a legitimate audience hit. That really puts the pressure on for season two. And Sandra Oh and Jodie Comer are back in their Vex double act. And Caroline, you are a big fan of Killing Eve, I know. (laughs) Uh, And so I'm curious what you've made of the first couple episodes of this high-pressure, highly anticipated season two. Yes. Uh, Like you said, I'm a big fan. I mean, I liked the first season of Killing Eve as much as I like basically anything. Um, Sandra O's obviously gotten a lot of very deserved critical acclaim for it and awards. And Jodie Comer, I hope soon, will follow in those footsteps because she deserves it. Uh, We've seen the first two episodes of the new season, which premieres on Sunday. And... I was really interested to see where it would go, not least because the first season ends on a pretty enormous cliffhanger. I won't say exactly what, just in case you are behind and need to catch up, which you should do. Um, And also because there was a pretty big behind-the-scenes shift this year. Creator and head writer Phoebe Waller-Bridge left the show to focus on season two of Fleabag, another show I love very dearly. And she was obviously a big part of the show and why it was so good in specific. So we were all wondering how it would look without her. The answer is um, largely the same, but we were talking about this a little bit off mic before, that it's a little tricky to tell exactly where the season is going and what it's going to be like based on the first two episodes. The first really deals with the immediate aftermath of the season one finale in a way that I do really like because... It would have felt a little cheap to fast forward past all of that. Yeah, uh, like two weeks later. Exactly. Yeah. This one literally picks up. This is not a spoiler. It's the it's the first shot of the first episode. It's 30 seconds after everything goes down. So they really don't avoid any of that to their credit. Um, but I'm not sure where it's going. And I'm, I think I need a little bit more to sort of get a, a handle on the season. But I can say that it hasn't radically shifted you i think if you didn't know that phoebe had left you might not realize um the new head writer is for those of the who don't know um emerald fennel a friend and collaborator of phoebe waller bridges she brought her in um specifically and apparently she's been on she's been working on the show before the first season since before the first season came out so she's not brand new to the killing eve world uh and a great name. She also is an actress. You might know her from Call the Midwife. And we will also be seeing her on The Crown season four eventually, I think, where she will be playing Camilla Parker Bowles. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> oh, that's terrific. Yes, I, I kept didn't that realize. A from yes, until that's, now. that's, that's, those are big pumps to step into. Um, yes, exactly. So um, she's an interesting person in and of herself. Um, I'm really interested to see where she takes the season. I am, I'm kind of, I'm optimistic, but I'm sort of holding out for my really big broad strokes conclusions, which is why you will not see a review for me quite yet. Yeah, it's interesting. I, like you, have watched uh, both the entire first season and the first two of season two. I think I'm probably a little less of, like, in the tank for the show, although I do like it. I'm just like, I, I'm not obsessed with it in quite the same way as okay, the core there are plenty of us <laughs> yeah, exactly no it's doing it. fine without me but i do think one kind of criticism of the new season i would have is that it's very tonally similar that's great but it kind of makes me wonder how long this can keep going as kind of waiting to see what's next is like okay has this did the story in fact reach a pretty natural terminus at the end of season 1 
because this is very tonally similar and yet I, at least in the first two episodes, didn't find anything to sink my teeth into in the same way that I found the character dynamic being established in season one. Yeah, I will say one of the things I was interested in from the first two episodes is that the show is certainly not shying away from the sort of tortured romance subtext of the first season in a way that sort of makes it clear and underlines their obsession with each other in a way that, like you said, I don't know how long it can sustain, but I am glad that they're not running away from that. I think that it is a really interesting dynamic to explore. But on the flip side also, they are not shying away from the fact that Villanelle, who's played by Comer, her character is an un repentant serial killer and i feel like i'm as guilty of this as anyone in the sort of fervor over this uh, over the show and the performances and their dynamic we can lose sight of that mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like the female version of tony soprano in a way it's a little like, bit right it's like very different in a lot of ways but kind of like oh my god she's such a heroine she's so charismatic like, right there's so yeah. much to her she's so complicated yeah, and yeah. then the first couple episodes are very clear to be like she also kills a lot of people and doesn't feel much about it so i think if the show can kind of keep putting that in our faces and sort of making us question our own obsession with her and her obsession, I think that's a really rich area to explore. And I hope that the rest of the season goes with it, but we're just going to have to wait and see. Yeah. Uh, And on another note, we are also going to be talking a little bit about an upcoming FX drama, Fosse Verdon, which has been a very sort of glossy drama that they've been pumping up for some time, starring Sam Rockwell and Michelle Williams as the titular Fosse and Verdon uh, about the famous choreographer and his less famous uh, collaborator and wife, Gwen Verdon. And it focuses more specifically, though it, it, it talks about their whole lives, but it talks very specifically about them collaborating on Cabaret, the celebrated film. And you reviewed this for us, and I know you've seen five episodes. Yes. I've only seen the first, so yes. I want to talk to you a little bit about your impression of the show, what this sort of looks like in the FX drama, stable, etc. Yeah, so FX, like starting from the network's eye view and then winnowing down, FX is in kind of an interesting position because a lot of their longtime signature things have gone away or are in a state of flux. The Americans is gone. Uh, Louis C.K. is long gone. Ryan Murphy is no longer making new original things for them, although we're told he'll still be involved with American Horror Story. Atlanta's on pause. Atlanta is on hiatus. They're left with a fairly bare cupboard, and this limited series could kind of represent a way to redress that gap, at least at the Emmys, which are unusually important to FX. They're important to all networks, but FX places an extremely high premium on them. I do think it will be represented in the Emmy nominations. What I question is whether outside of the industry and uh, the TV critic chattering class, of which I am proudly a member, <laughs> uh, so not to cast dispersions on my colleagues, but I question whether this will find and sustain an audience. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a show that is very in love with the kind of nuts and bolts and mechanics of show business. The um, first episode, as you say, focuses on the making of the film Cabaret. It touches down, kind of skittering through time on different moments in their partnership, including, um, you know, the lead up to the Broadway production of Chicago, in which Verdon starred, and which was a comeback for her. The start of her career as, you know, a celebrated chorus girl meeting this up-and-coming director. 
all of it is done with evident love for theater uh in part likely because um the production team includes a great many creatives from hamilton with whom fx clearly wanted to be in business but none of it feels either particularly penetrable or particularly novel it's using a vocabulary to which only perhaps core broadway junkies will have access to tell a story about the flawed male genius and the strong stoic woman he didn't treat the right way which is so not a story that feels new i mean any story has merit if you tell it well but it feels so half-hearted, the biographical elements, and it feels like they, what they really just wanted to do was do a Fosse musical review and mm. just do the dance numbers. And, you know, that might be really fun. Maybe they should have tried doing that. Like, anything that is not singing and dancing falls really flat for me. With that said, there is one great scene pretty deep into the season of, um, like, a boozy night at the beach and um williams sings a show tune at the piano kind of not in full theatrical voice but kind of in a kind of karaoke with friends Mm -hmm. way and she gets a lot across in that song and it made me wish her story lived up to what she shows she can deliver yeah um, even just from the first episode i was so impressed with what she was doing just physically with her voice everything and also of course, Michelle Williams was in Cabaret as Sally Bowles at one point, so this probably feels rather full circle for her. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's really... She is giving a terrific performance, one that I'm sure, as I say, will be Emmy-nominated. It is an incredibly competitive category this year, so nothing is certain in terms of a win. But I just kind of feel like it should have just been Verdon Verdon. Mm-hmm. Sam Rockwell, terrific actor, much decorated... He's just you. You see this kind of nebbishy director character, whom everyone's obsessed with, and your eye, if you're anything like me, keeps going to Michelle Williams, mm-hmm. and she is backgrounded by the story, and and she so demands to be foregrounded. Yeah. Well, like you said, there are different ways. There are good ways to tell any story, and one way to tell the tortured man has a genius woman behind him story might just be to make it about the genius woman just throwing that out there absolutely i (laughs) honestly think a gwen verdon show in which bob fossey floated in and out would be so much more satisfying than a bob fossey show in which gwen verdon floated in and out wow well well we'll see what you guys all think of it eventually and also hey there's always more tv where that came from Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with John Bradley of HBO's Game of Thrones. 